Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Robert Martin, Nasser Mashni and Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi. Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Yusuf. Good morning, listeners, and welcome back to Michael Sheikh. Michael, it's great to have you back again on Palestine Remembered. Thank you. It's, it's an honour. It's always good to have Michael here. He's very, very knowledgeable about everything that's going on in Palestine and an author as well. So very impressed to have him. I think uh, for those who uh, missed our uh, few, uh, past interviews with uh, Michael, Michael is an Australian uh, advocate for Palestine, one of the pioneers of advocacy groups in Palestine. He was one of the leading thinkers behind the flotilla. Absolutely. Um, before it started, uh, Michael himself went during the peak of the Second Intifada to Palestine and was imprisoned for a few days for his uh, solidarity with the Palestinian people. And working actually with Rachel Corrie at the time as well, the same time. Also one of the people who had uh, seen uh, Rachel Corrie. Now, before we start uh, our uh, interview, Michael, maybe on this particular uh, particular point, what could you tell us about uh, Rachel Corrie? And then we'll start the discussion on uh, more current uh, issues. She went over to Palestine at the beginning of... Um, 2003, just before the Iraq war. She was one of the more brave activists who chose to go to the Rafah in the Gaza Strip, mm-hmm. where the Israelis were demolishing a whole suburb of houses along the mm. border with Egypt. And um, she was trying to stop the houses being demolished. They were also destroying water wells, and they would shoot Palestinians on sight, unlike the West Bank. So there were a few internationals there who were, who were trying to stop what was going on. They were doing a very good job, and that's why the Israelis lost their temper and started killing them. They killed Rachel Corrie, they ran her over with a bulldozer, and then three weeks later they shot dead Tom Herndl, a British guy. They shot him in the head, Um, and they also shot a British journalist called Ian Hawke um, through the heart, Um, and that all happened within a few weeks of each other. The thing is... um, even though these people were Westerners and they obviously weren't anything to do with Hamas or any terrorist organisation, none of the pe- people who murdered them have been brought mm. to justice. It's just been dropped, even by their own governments, because mm-hmm. Israel never prosecutes its soldiers um, when they kill people, even if they're not Palestinians. And this, this is a perfect segue, actually, to something we want to talk about, because on August the 9th of this year, uh, Israel actually bombed the Gaza Cultural Centre 
Al-Mishal Cultural Center. Yeah, mm. so not only, like, during the 2014 strike, they, schools, UN schools, water wells, electricity places, but also this time they've done the Cultural Center, which is, to me, something that just shows that they're not fighting terrorism, they're fighting uh, Palestinians. Yeah. Anything to do with Palestine, they want to get rid of. Yeah. And so the Cultural Center, tell us what your thoughts are on that, the reasons why, and any other comments you want to make. Well, you know, if you try hard enough, you can understand why Israel shoots Palestinians, even those who are non-violently protesting in the Great March of Return. And how, they can, we, wanna, how can we think that? Well, they want to protect their Jewish state. The Palestinians don't like being part of a Jewish state in which they've got no representation. They it's because they're not Jewish? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You know, they reckon they've got a right to return to their home, so they see them as a security threat, and that's why they kill them. Yeah. That's why they kill a lot of Palestinians. They want to take over their country. That's why they demolish Palestinian homes. There is a logic to it. But why would you destroy a centre that Palestinians go to to recite poetry, to write plays, to author books, to meet, to do, to do dancing and express themselves in a very troubled situation? And, you know, that, that makes a lot less sense unless you understand the colonial logic of this enterprise. Yeah. And, you know, all colonial logic isn't just about taking land and suppressing resistance. It's about dehumanizing people. It's about taking away their culture. Because without culture, culture is what Palestinians use to express themselves to the rest of the world, but also to express themselves to each other, to tell each other stories about why they're here. We all do that. We, we it's all an do outlet, that. isn't it? It is, but it also f- fixes you because without our cultures around the world. We're just atoms in a we're void. We're numbers. Yeah, we're, mm. we're nothing. And, you know, that leaves us very vulnerable to suicide, radicalism, drug addiction, and, and all kinds of yeah, delinquency. Absolutely. It happened in Australia. That's what Stolen Children was about. It was about taking children out of their culture and removing their culture. And I don't think Indigenous society in Australia has recovered for that, and I don't think they will recover it for several decades, if, if at all. So back then they were also telling the Aboriginals that they should be ashamed of being Aboriginals. Exactly. And you can do that if you break down people's culture. Mm. And, you know, I think that's what Israel did in August the 9th when they bombed a purely cultural target. And, you know, in a way it's not as bad as killing teenagers who are demonstrating on Peacefully. the Gaza border. But in a way it's even worse. Symbolically. It is. It's a symbolic wound, and mm. it's a wound at the entire Palestinian people and their culture, saying, you are nothing, mm. and, and, you know, breaking that down. Because I don't know, um, Yusuf, you saw Taha last month, I that did. wonderful play at the Magnificent. Art Center. And, you know, that was so important. Just for those who don't know Taha, this is a theatrical play that was played by Amir Hlayhel, who visited us last month, and it was in memory of the Palestinian uh, poet uh, Taha Mahmoud Ali. Yeah, go on. Well, you know, most Australians, including myself, knew almost nothing about that, that, that poet and the history of it. But it was such a powerful story translated into English by one man, and it really kind of like brought home the humanity of Palestinians to Australians but also for the Palestinians living in Australia and for other Palestinians watching that play, it told them stories about themselves, about where they fit into the world. It made them part of a nation mm. and a community, and that's what all mythology does. It doesn't have to be true or false, but you know, it, national stories are so important. When you take that away from people, when you destroy their cultural centre, 
the capacity to produce that culture, you're really um, crushing a, a soul of a nation. You can talk about them destroying the wells in Gaza, destroying the su- sewage infrastructure. Which they did. How the sea in Gaza is now full of human excrement because they can't treat the sewage. You know, you can talk about um, the unemployment because of the blockade, the poverty and all that kind mm. of stuff. But in a way, it, it's almost as bad or p- possibly even worse because what you're doing is you're taking away people's identity, the, their sense of themselves. Mm. And I don't think we should forget this. This is an ongoing war against the Palestinians. I mean, Yusuf... You know lots of stories about Palestinian artists and intellectuals being actually sought out and assassinated Indeed. by Mossad. Um, before I speak about uh, some of the Palestinian intellectuals that were targeted just because, assassinated just because they were intellectuals, I want to reflect on a couple of points uh, you mentioned, uh, the importance of the Palestinian uh, ability to communicate with each other after 71 years of fragmenting, systematically fragmenting the Palestinian society. We are a population of 14 million Palestinians worldwide, but we live in five big baskets. The first one is inside Israel, and the ones who remained, uh, or what the Zionists call the unfinished job of the 1948 and um, where they live under marginalization, under systematic uh, discrimination, like third or fourth uh, class citizens. And the second group is the people of West Bank, where they have been living for 51 years under direct military occupation. And under this category, you enlist the separation wall, the raids, the checkpoints, colonization and settlements. settlements. The third domain is Gaza people who have been living for 11 years for 11 years under uh, the siege tightened siege where everything is calculated by grams in terms of what they should eat and with what with what they can build or not and the fourth one is the situation of the people of Jerusalem where you know Jerusalem is unlike the other areas of West Bank it has been under systematic Judaization where any Muslim or Christian ownership or site is targeted to change the identity of place and people and by also importing uh, settlers uh, from all around the world. Um, The fifth one is where I fit into, that's the diaspora. Now, within this big basket of diaspora, the stateless Palestinian refugees, you can have other sub categories that the the, the Palestinian Jordanians, the Palestinian Lebanese, the Palestinian Syrians. And we spoke last week about the plight of the Palestinian Syrians, the the ongoing uh, plight of the Palestinians in Syria. And then you can add to it the Palestinians of Iraq and then the others in the Gulf and us here in Australia. So in this context of fragmentization, it is very important for the Palestinian artists and intellectuals to sustain and maintain their ability to communicate through arts, through literary work, and through theatrical plays and music. And that is what Israel fears 71 years after the creation of this rogue state. I think this is a perfect segue because, as we know, Israel is trying to demolish anything that's Palestinian, as we just discussed with the uh, the cultural centre on March the on August the ninth, I think. Michael also went to an event which APAN was a part sponsor, which is the military court. An Australian guy went over there a number of years ago, mm. basically for a look 
And I think he ended up staying there and he's still there now. And it's all to do with the military court in Palestine and what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinian kids. So not only in Gaza are they demolishing buildings, cultural buildings, in the occupied territories, they're dehumanising the kids, they're coming through at midnight. Tell us how you thought, because I know that you've seen a lot of things over Mm. the years, this was one of the things that really tore you up. What were the, the main things that got you out of this that you got? Well, yeah, it was quite harrowing. And this is from a guy who's been doing Palestine for several years about the systematic um, brutalisation of, of children and the humiliation of families on a daily basis. Like, you know, every night the soldiers would come in the middle of the night. I want to mention the name of the speaker. Uh, they were Jared Horton and Salwa Dwebus, two mm-hmm. wonderful people who've been working with Military Court Watch, collecting Palestinian testimonies. One of the things they did earlier this year was they took a whole lot of Australian politicians over to the military courts just to sit in the room and watch proceedings. And I believe Anne Ertquart, a Labour senator from Australia, this week in Parliament, she testified about how uh, of her experience there and the patent injustice of it all. Kids without interpreters being forced to answer questions in Hebrew to a judge that's sometimes asleep um, because it's all a fix, essentially. I think people also just on. need to know that when Michael says that they uh, are asked to sign things in Hebrew, part of what Israel do is they take them out of the areas where their parents don't have a permit. So they'll take the child out between 2 and 3 in the morning. They'll actually blindfold them, which is against international law. They'll actually hand-tie them out the back. Sometimes they'll drive around many, many blocks to upset the kids. They'll then take the kid to an area where mum and dad can't go because they don't have a permit. And so against international law, you're supposed to have legal representation and your, ch- your parents must be able to attend. But again, Israel doesn't do this. Mm. And yeah. it's part of their systematic abuse of what the kids... So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, they, they talked about all that and you know how they're put on the floor of the jeep and the soldiers put their feet on them and if they say anything, they're beaten. These are 10, 11-year-old kids who are suspected of throwing stones and um, essentially how they break them down. And the, the state they come back to their families in. And, of course, the families are traumatised, not only by losing their kids, because their houses are repeatedly raided. Imagine if your house was repeatedly raided at 2 o'clock every morning. We can't. We can't possibly imagine that. We I mean, imagine the breach of privacy. You won't want to take your clothes off when you go to mm. bed. Or- well, I, think, I think also another important fact that they mentioned was the fact that it becomes a training regime because these, these people are entering a house that they know are civilians. There's no weapons and that's, that's a well-known fact. There's no weapons in these houses. Now, as we all know, Ahid Tamimi slapped a soldier. I spent time in their house. They had been raided 200 times over the last few years. Mm. And so they were saying that they just raid. That was part of a training program. Yeah, the they, they talked about this woman and her son who were alone in the house. And there wasn't any kind of like stone throwing or anything in that area. And one night she woke up and found all these soldiers in her bedroom. And she was absolutely terrified. And the only thing they could think of was they picked that village specifically because it was so quiet and non-militant, because that's a good place to train. You see, Palestinians have no rights, no rights at all. It's really hard for Australians to understand. They can't go to anyone and say, my house was invaded last night or the soldiers stole a $1,000 from my house last night because they're not even people in their own country. Australian listeners must remember that we're talking about a foreign army. So a foreign army raids your house at 2 o'clock yeah. in, the, uh, in the morning 
takes your children and treats them like this. Yeah. This is, this is what the Palestinians are going through. But also been. these soldiers. Imagine these soldiers that are capable of doing this to a mother and a father. So they've left their mother and father from the Israeli area. Mm. They've put their, their, uh, their equipment on and their M16s, and they're all with their mates, like going to a scout camp or a cub camp. They're capable of walking in and seeing a mother and a father cry. They're capable of seeing a young child ripped out of their bed. It could be exactly like their brother or sister. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I'll tell you one thing. Jared Horton, the Australian, he, he talked about that. And he said, look, you've got to remember that most of them are 19. Their commanding officer is 24. And breaking the silence, that Israeli um, group of former soldiers, they took the testimony of a boy, you know, who was, when he was 19. And he said he felt really bad the way the child in the floor of the jeep was treated by the fellow soldiers. And he thought, well, supposing that was my brother. You know, they were beating him, they were making fun of him, they were making him cry. And he said, but by the end of the troop, I was beating him as well. You know, I learned to fit in. Because, you know, if you're a 19-year-old boy, you've just joined the army, you need to stay in there for three years. If you start making trouble and speaking out, it's going to be a very long three years being isolated. But the fact that you can have a group in there doing this shows that they're taught that the Palestinians are subhuman Mm. Yeah. and that they have to intimidate these people. And I can promise you that I personally believe that you and I and Yusuf wouldn't participate in that. We wouldn't because we're all mature middle-aged men. But think back to when you were 18 years old. You uh, joined a new group and you were desperate to be accepted. You, you know, um, that is the situation. And I uh, think Gerald Horton, you know, he said ultimately the Palestinians are the victims. But it also... Though, brutalizes Israelis. I mean, can you imagine those are your formative years as a, as a first That's adult? terrific. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not really pitying No, no, no them, that, absolutely. But, you know, the they, they become a it. brutish people. There is a concept that I heard from my Israeli peace activists, which made it into English. The concept is called scratched. When the person is scratched, it's like, you know, a CD that is scratched. You, cannot, you can no longer use it. And this is a concept in the former IDF soldiers when they leave the service, when they are scratched mentally and emotionally for the crimes they've done during their service. And then it keeps coming to them in forms of nightmares and other forms. So, yes, the the context of what you're saying, Michael, is important. Yeah, it's very tragic. And, you know, we, we could say we wouldn't do it. I'm not sure. I think I would have done it as a teenager, desperate to fit in, because there's nothing worse than being part of a... 10-man section, and you're the guy that nobody likes. I, I, was, you know? I was always the guy that actually had a crack at the bully. That was just the way I was, maybe because right. it was my upbringing. Right. Whatever it was, it's, uh, you know, my upbringing was maybe a bit different than some. So, Get But it's, you know, it's very, very sad. And uh, the, also, the only way this will stop is if they're held accountable. This, is, this fits into what Gideon Levy um, says or um, the three moral walls that the Israeli society lives behind. One of the walls is that they really, really see uh, the Palestinians are subhuman. Yeah. They really don't see us as equal humans. They, seem, they see them as occupiers as well. The Palestinians and are taking the other land. Wall, the, other, the other wall, moral war, which is ironic, is that this is unprecedented in history where the occupiers really believe that they are the victims. It never happened in history where an occupying power played the role of victim. And they do believe that. Before Israel. And they maintain occupation in every form and shape and still want the world to believe that Mm. they are the victims. 
Well, they genuinely believe that they are the victims, okay. yeah. which is it's ironic a, and absurd. So, so people should actually just either go to the OPAN website or Google a military court watch because what they've done is fantastic work. People will be blown away with what they see, and if they can use that information and share it, it'll be a wonderful thing. Hopefully we'll put the link. Yeah, in. like I've been doing this you for years. I've been doing this for years, and it really brought it home to me, the visceral reality. You can quote facts and figures and two states and one state, but actually understanding what it's like for ordinary families. And he said it's all about the settlements. You know, in Ramallah it's fine because they're not near any settlements. As soon as you get near the settlements, then most of the kids arrested are near there because they have to maintain security for the settlements. And the only way they can do that is proactive um, harassment and brutalization of nearby Palestinians. And it doesn't matter who goes to jail because it's actually punishing the community. The community gets a message that if stones are thrown on that road, then some of your kids will go. And mm. that's the message. That's the proactive policing that I talked so, about. So what happens when an Israeli throws a stone anyway? I'm assuming it's equal rights, yeah? Well, they go to different courts because Palestinians are under military courts, Israelis are under civilian okay. courts, and they have different laws. And generally, that's you a know, good democracy. Yeah. So equal rights, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, also have to remember that the Palestinians in West Bank have been living under um, ongoing harassment of settlers. Everything Palestinian is under the target of harassment and violence of settlers. And how does the state treat this violence or? Uh, look at it in um, in complete uh, blind eye. Yeah. Well, it's it's more than a blind eye. It's basically they encourage the Israelis to continue by not persecuting them, hmm. but also then persecuting the Palestinians for actually not doing a lot. So it's more than not doing something. That's we encouraging. Have, we have to also give credit to human rights organization inside Israel, like B'Tselem, that yes. that highlights these violations inside the occupied territories and especially inside. Israeli prisons, and they do magnificent work, they issue reports, and they really document in evidence um, what happens inside Israeli prisons. They've done a great job giving Palestinians cameras in places like Hebron so they can actually film what's happening. So now the Israeli Knesset is going to pass a law saying that you can't film soldiers if it would in any way upset the spirit of the Israeli army. So what what it is, it's, it's legal to break the law, but it's illegal to film the act of breaking the law. Yeah. That's the only <laughs> democracy in the Middle East that actually allows you to do criminal acts, but you cannot be filmed. Let's talk, let's talk about something else that's very bizarre, mm-hmm. and that's the assassination that Israel has done over the years of intellectuals that actually just speak the truth. Um, Israel's war on Palestinian culture and intellectuals started even before the creation of Israel, but I will mention uh, some of the famous names. I will start by Ghassan Kanafani, the internationally recognized Palestinian author and novelist. Yes, he was a spokesperson of PFLP, but he never carried a weapon, and uh, to Israel, he was more dangerous uh, than uh, militants, Palestinian militants. So Ghassan uh, was uh, assassinated uh, with his niece, Lamis, in a car bombing in Beirut in 1972, in July 72. That's two months before Munich operation. And then in October 72, uh, Mahmoud Al-Hamshari, the head of PLO's delegation to Paris, 
an intellectual and the uh, architect of uh, the Palestinian-French relations um, in early 70s, especially with French intellectuals who was assassinated by Mossad uh, in his home in Paris. Also, a few months after that in Rome, the assassination of Wael Zaiter, PLO's representative to Italy, who, in addition to his political career, he was an intellectual, a translator. He was the first Arab to have translated 1001 Nights, the famous collection of stories, uh, into Italian. Uh, language and um, he also built a very strong ties with philosophers and thinkers in Italy and for that he was assassinated. Having mentioned Mahmoud al-Hamshari and Wael Zaiter, I want to highlight the inaccuracy and misrepresentation of their story in Hollywood movie Munich in 2006. Have you seen the movie? I have seen the movie, yeah. No, I haven't. The, the yeah. movie, which was like 12 years it was ago. Honest, it was honest, but it's not long ago. Yeah. The movie showed uh, Mahmoud, uh, Mahmoud's wife, Mahmoud al-Hamshari's wife, as just another Palestinian woman, when in fact she was a French woman, and her name is Marie Claude uh, al-Hamshari. This is just another reminder uh, of the lack of interest and attention of the movie director uh, Spielberg to the details of Palestinian lives and all he needed to do is just a bit of fact-finding and just fact-checks. Also, with the story of Wael Zaiter, the movie portrayed Wael Zaiter as an old man in his 60s when he was assassinated at the age of 38. So even even when it comes to accuracy, when it comes to fact-finding, the Palestinians always get the wrong representation, not to mention the content. So Israel's killing these people in other countries as well? In Rome, in, in France, in Beirut, assassinating, and also the three Palestinian leaders and Fatah leaders, Kamal Udwan, Kamal Nasser, and Yusuf al-Najjar. These people were intellectual. Yes, they were members of the Fatah Central Committee, but they were not the militant they were not the ones, they could have targeted, you know, the militant groups, mm-hmm. but they, they took the opportunity to start with intellectuals, and uh, before the end of the show, we will recite the translation of one of the poems of Kamal Nasser, who was a Christian. A lot of his Palestinian and Lebanese friends realized he was Christian only after he was taken to the Christian cemetery for burial. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter, on, does on, it? On, it didn't, didn't yeah, matter. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. a Palestinian movement and still is. Um, was was the world outcry? Well, there there is a mention, but as usual, Israel continued to keep getting away with its crimes. Well, I'll just mention this. Early this year, two Russians, a father and daughter, were murdered by the FSB in Mm. Salisbury. And that caused an international diplomatic crisis, and it should have. It should. It should have. But the Russian lobby has never been as powerful as the international Israel lobby. So, so even back the then French in the 70s? And the Italians and the British knew what Mossad were up to. They were murdering people in their own countries in defiance of their laws, but they looked the other way. you know. And oh. that happens again and again. And then to make things worse, Steven Spielberg makes a film out of it, and who does he demonise? The, the victims. Mm. You know? And I thought that was just Steven Spielberg, that was several years ago, but I don't know if any of you ever watched that terrible BBC um, television series called The Honourable Woman. 
And that was the most racist, vile, anti-Palestinian propaganda I've seen in ages, produced only like three, four years ago by the BBC. Mm. You know, it actually, you know, represented the Palestinians as murdering their own people um, to get international attention, luring a Jewish woman into Gaza so they could rape her. Uh, There's never been any history of that ever. Um, And, you know, the whole thing was, and, you know, she was a good Jew. But at the end, she realized that there was no point being a good Jew who helps Arabs because Arabs just want to murder Jews because they hate them. Let's just make that clear that this is a show that obviously is completely false. It was filmed on Uh, SBS to rave reviews um, and it was produced by the BBC. And it just shows the depths of anti-Palestinian racism um, I think you have to understand the depths of even unconscious racism in the West well, to understand how bit. we got to where we are today. I think that's an important bit. It's the unconscious one because yeah. you don't know that you are, but you think you know everything from the snippets that we see. As much as we would love to continue the discussion with our esteemed uh, guest and friend, uh, Michael Sheikh, I think we have come to the end of uh, this uh, episode of Palestine Remembered. But before we leave you, uh, our dear listeners, Robert is going to recite the English translation of a poem written by Kamal Nasser 10 years after Nakba. I will tell you a story, a story that lived in the dreams of people, a story that comes out of the world of tents, was made by hunger and decorated by dark nights. In my country, and my country is a handful of refugees, every 20 of them have a pound of flour and promise of relief, gifts and parcels. It is a story of suffering group who stood for 10 years in hunger, in tears and agony, in hardship and yearning. It is a story of people who were misled, who were thrown into the mazes of years, but they defied and stood, disrobed and united, and went to the light from the tents. The Revolution of Return in the World of Darkness by Kamal Nasser. Thank you, Robert, and uh, thank you uh, to our uh, guest, uh, Michael Sheikh. Thank you very much. It's always an honour.